Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'm going to need it. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down Swansfield, and we'll see them. What you doing down here, you Johnny man? There's more than one way to win a football match, and conceding 75% possession, 33 shots. And 5.01 of our old friend expected goals. Sounds like one of the more convoluted routes to take, but it worked for Manchester United on Saturday night. Hello and welcome to Monday's Second Captain's Football Podcast. Hi, Ken. Hi, Kieran. Hello, no. Hello there, It is a tricky road to take. You do need a couple of key strengths to carry a plan like that off. If indeed it is a plan to concede 33 shots, maybe it's not. A world-class goalkeeper who is ready to make a record equaling amount of saves. A midfielder capable of producing a couple of moments of creative magic. And then an ability just to score with all your shots pretty mm. much I think they score with three out of four shots what did you make of Mourinho's great entertainers does uh, expected goals take into account expected goals if you have David De Gea no. I mean you know the the relative quality of the opponent's goalkeeper is not something that's included in the algorithm I presume no that's one of the uh, it's a glitch in the system <laughs> well it, it's not really a glitch in that I mean, I, I, I always seem to find myself being the, the person who has to defend the concept <laughs> of expected yeah. goals, right? Well, you and Gab Marcotti, yeah. Um, it's, I haven't done any work on this concept. I've merely followed it, observed, observed its development with interest. Um, it, it doesn't take into account your expected goals if David De Gea is the goalkeeper. What it will show you, in theory, if David De Gea is a very good goalkeeper, is that his team regularly concedes fewer than the expected goals that mm. you you would expect them to concede, you see. So if if continually expected goals against Manchester United is four point six or whatever it was Arsenal had, and the actual goals is one, then that three point six mm. is what's telling you that David de Gea is, is a bloody, pretty useful. He's a bloody good goalkeeper. Right. Nonsense. Five point zero one is what I was what I read that Arsenal. Yeah, were. yeah, yeah. I think that was it on matches day as well. Yeah. Yeah, different different models, different numbers, mm. but all of them with the same uh, general implication, which that Arsenal really should have won this game, <laughs> scoring four or more goals against Manchester United. He shouldn't have scored as many as two goals. So it didn't go according to plan. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, I'm, I'm always reminded, I mean, De Gea made 14 saves, which is a Premier League record or a joint record, uh, and, and apparently twice as many saves as he's ever had to make in a Premier League game before, which is, which is amazing. Um, I always remember, though, that someone saying after another uh, De Gea miracle show, someone, I can't remember who it was, just tweeting, hmm, maybe the secret to beating De Gea is shooting either side of him. And I did feel there was a bit of that going on with Arsenal, um, well, yeah, the one time they did try that, like I said, did score. There was, you know, the Sanchez one. It's an amazing save by De Gea. Like, you know, it's a double save. He he saves the first one very well down to his right. Then he kind of springs up half, kind of half, kind of springs and manages to sort of lasso his foot in front of the ball and block a shot that should have just been chipped over him. Come on, Alexi Sanchez, put that. I don't know. Chip if that enough, ball over him. I don't know if there was enough room. I think by the time. Sanchez struck the ball. He was 
being foot blocked essentially. I don't mm. think there was. I don't know if there's necessarily room. And, oh, and there was the, room. There was room. He blasted straight at the, at the studs of De Gea, who, who who put his foot in the in. He did the only thing he could do to save the shot. Tell your friend Ken that Lacazette did his best with my that friend. initial shot. Your friend was it? Or was it? Well, Are you it talking was about my previous... friend expected goals. No, no, it was if the, your friend from a no. previous to here wonder yeah, show. Your friend. Oh no, it's it's said, it's yeah. someone on Twitter who who posted a witness. Well, a friend, Twitter. a friend you haven't met yet, Ken. Yeah, An online friend. Someone tell I that person. <laughs> tell that person you followed that. There were a couple of efforts. Yes, I mean the Lacazette save was brilliant. The first part of that double save, mm. I thought it was, it was actually better than the second part, yeah. which is what most people were talking about. And the save from Lukaku's rather weird. Attempted clearance that came off the inside of his knee or something, yeah, and yeah. looped up in this at this weird angle, weird tra- trajectory was another tricky one. So it's this always happens when a goalkeeper has these performances that it feels as though every save was amazing, and then you go and look back, and oftentimes it's not the case. I'm thinking Tim Howard in the World Cup mm. a couple of years ago. Most of the saves are by and large going to be basic enough, but I think in this case there were definitely one or two worldies. Oh yeah, can you call yeah. saves worldies? Yeah, you can, and he's amazing. You're a twat. He's an, he's sorry, <laughs> I hate the phrase worldy. I'm sorry. He it's is. Just, well, it's, yeah. it's right hate, up there with banter. I hate people calling people twats. Uh, on oh, and I'm sorry. Oh, and I'm sorry. I'm he sorry is. A, yeah, he's an amazing player. It's December 4th, and we've already had quite a few people getting in touch looking for some Christmas present inspiration or inspo, Murph. <laughs> some of these people, some of these people possibly looking at presents for themselves in certain cases, I can't help but notice. Nothing wrong with that. We encourage that. You've got to give yourself a little bit of well done, oh time. <laughs> the good news is we have an awesome new batch of Second Captain's World Service t-shirts in stock and going online on secondcaptains.com. You can have a look at them now. There's a nice little 10% discount for our lovely World Service members. As always, just one of the many perks. Wi-Fi wankers. Just one of the many perks of signing up. And being a Wi-Fi wanker. Ken, before we get into the report on sport, I must congratulate you on an outstanding Kennerly political podcast last week in the World Service. Oh, thanks. Thanks to all the people that got in touch about the show with Edward Burke on Brexit and the border issue. Edward himself tweeted us. Mm-hmm. Always nice when the yeah. guest on the show has nice things to say. Hugely enjoyed speaking to Ken Early on Second Captain's podcast yesterday. Amazing show. Most forensic interviewer about. Mm-hmm. I don't believe I've ever, I, I don't believe I've ever been called forensic by someone I've just interviewed before. I oh, certainly, it's never <laughs> happened to me before, Ron. Never. <laughs> Does forensic mean boring? No. No, no, no. <laughs> no. Forensic. Don't ruin this weekend. He, he had a great weekend. All weekend he was thinking about how forensic he was <laughs> yeah. on Friday morning. Uh, make up your own mind. For example, one academic from King's College London asked a, a question about what was Ireland willing to concede. He basically got laughed out of the room. You know, and, and well, well, Ed, though, did he get laughed out of the room for asking that question? Or did he get laughed out of the room for suggesting that Ireland should rejoin the British Commonwealth? Um, that's, that's, that that's is, in fact, what he what he he, he yeah. suggested. We should re- the laugh, the laugh, like the punchline was when he mentioned the words, "Why don't you join the British Commonwealth?" That's when everybody laughed. Some of their instincts often come from a good good position, right? So they just want us to bring us close, right? We find that laughable sometimes, but but you know what we shouldn't be doing is shouting and laughing. You know what I mean? This is you know an Englishman scorned. <laughs> Let's reach out and kill the DUP with kindness. Yeah, brilliant discussion. Uh, I sounded like I was just like a heckler there. <laughs> just, a, yeah. just yobbishly shouting, <laughs> distracting and irrelevant comments. Yeah, I, I actually think we've done a very good job of distilling the basic premise of the interview there. That's, that's, not, that's not really what it was like. <laughs> anyway. I think we left the subject with... We left the interview with the subject clearer in our heads. We must essentially bore, bore, bore the Brexiteers into submission. Keep talking. They'll eventually stop listening. I ended up having a completely different opinion on everything by the end of the podcast, which I think is pretty much where you want to be. To listen to that show, you must be a World Service member. Join us today for the best independent commercial free broadcasting and also, of course, for a nice little discount on our Christmas time t-shirts. Go to secondcaptains.com for just five euro a month plus VAT. You can get all our shows and back catalogue, I should say, today. Now, let's report on Sport Kit. So, you know the, the most sycophantic laughter of all? You know what kind of laughter the most sycophantic laughter is? We've no. talked about it before. Typical. Typical. Oh, six, oh, yeah. Journalist press room. Journalist press. Funny football manager yeah. makes, well, not particularly funny football manager. A football manager makes a gag yeah. and uh, <laughs> react uproariously. Yeah. Well, uh, I've seen more uh, sycophantic laughter than that even, Owen. Uh, it is FIFA president laughter when uh, the Tsar of all the Russias 
Emperor and Autocrat of Moscow, Kiev, Vladimir, Novgorod, Tsar of Kazan, Tsar of Astrakhan, Tsar of Poland, Tsar of Siberia, Tsar of Chersonese, Torian, Tsar of Georgia, Lord of Skov, and Grand Prince of Smolensk, <laughs> Lithuania, Volhynia, Podolia, Finland, Priest of Estland, Livland, Kurland, etc. Vladimir Putin. He's not, he doesn't actually hold all those titles officially uh, these days. But he was in the, he was in the room along with FIFA president Johnny Infantino mm-hmm. uh, to have a little glass of champagne with some assembled grandees of the football family. People like Diego Maradona, Fabio Cannavaro, uh, Laurent Blanc, Marcel Desailly, you know. Work, Gar- work. Is Gary Lineker there? Uh, I didn't see Lineker in this clip. I mean, Lineker was obviously the, the, the presenter of the whole, of the big show. Mm-hmm. Um there's a good article by Barney Roney about that, actually, if, uh, just before the, um, well, uh, the day before the draw, maybe the day off the draw, just saying, this has felt a bit disappointing to me to see mm. Gary Lineker, who, you know, who's previously been criticizing FIFA a lot, suddenly kind of presenting their awful show, <laughs> making the point that the last person to do Lineker's job, the job that he's doing at the World Cup draw is Jerome Valk, currently banned from football for 10 years for corruption, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. But uh, anyway, this this scene was the football family. I mean, we're talking about the top the top members, the seniors, the elders of the football family, um, were greeted uh, by Vladimir Putin, uh, who came in, bit scarcely an inch taller than Diego Maradona. You couldn't help noticing, um, even in the built-up shoes. And uh, next to next to uh, Gianni Infantino, the fawning FIFA president. And uh, the champagne was, was handed out. Vladimir, Vladimir took a little sip and looked around the, looked around the room with his, his strangely motionless, expressionless face and said, huh, in, in Russian, through an interpreter, the draw will certainly be a lot more fun now, he said, as he glugged in, in a little bit of his champagne. To which Gianni Infantino responded, honestly, <laughs> oh, you're right, RF. FIFA draws are interminably long and boring and terrible. <laughs> yeah, it will be the uh, it will be the draw party, and not just the draw, says Johnny uh, Infantino. That's like his. So this is translated for Putin, who. Yeah, just didn't laugh. Back. Expressionlessly receives the bon mot of uh, of Infantino, and then he offers the opinion again in Russian through his interpreter, an interpreter I got to know when watching the Oliver Stone uh, movies about Oliver Stone made like four one hour documentaries about about Put, uh, Putin, uh, Putin, uh, early, which came out earlier in the year. It's a pretty interesting uh, watch, I would say. Um, same interpreter uh, involved in that, but the, inter- the interpreter translated the comment as, well, uh, football has often been uh, described as a family, so the meeting will be like a family meeting. <laughs> and to which Infantino said, gesturing like, uh, you know, with his, his arm as though to indicate the sweep and expanse of the Russian steps, and what a family. And again, again, uh, Vladimir uh, does not really respond. And then uh, I think they, they drank a little bit of champagne, and uh, I don't know if he finished his glass, and, and left the room. And whereupon followed the World Cup draw, which watching, I was, there was a comedy. Well, I didn't watch it. I didn't watch it at the time. I went back and watched a bit of it. Um, I couldn't bear to watch it on. And I also had a couple of things to do on, on Friday afternoon when it was on, so just didn't bother. Um, but I looked at the groups, and I thought, these groups don't look great. Do they? I mean, obviously, I look for Denmark first. Yeah, of course. Australia, Peru, and France. Now, that would have been a great group. Obviously, we always like playing France. It's like a rugby group, basically. Um, We always like playing France. Uh, Australia would have been some crack, Owen. Uh, And And, and Peru would have been something a bit different. 
Prue would have been something something a little different. I, yeah, I love that would have been this the hypothetical game. group. I actually think yeah. it would have been a lot of fun to be involved in that. that would have been Winnable tr- games, yeah. largely. Well, like, well, Prue obviously would have been the three points that we'd already put in the bank yeah, and yeah, taken yeah. out a mortgage on. Yeah, yeah, we'd, yeah. we'd taken out a complex okay, so stack of derivatives based we, we draw, on that we solid gold so equity for three yeah, points. Yeah, we beat Peru, yeah. Obviously, presumably you ranked a good bit higher than us in the world, but we beat them. Yeah, 11th in the world or whatever. No problem. Take care of that. Well, obviously, draw with France, maybe beat them on a good day, and then you're going for probably... Ah oh, no! Well, we, we France probably. last. We oh, France, France, last, France have already yeah, qualified. Up to France, so that's yeah, another yeah. three points. Yeah. We could end up topping this group. Yeah. So, yeah, there. That, that's uh, if Shane Long could just start finding the net again. Sorry, Ken. <laughs> we, I mean, look at Shane Long scoreless for eighty-three games in a row. Everyone knows that. Looking through the groups, uh, I suppose the, the striking thing of the draw was oh, it's Russia against Saudi Arabia in the first uh, match. That'll be a good way to get things going. Um, uh, Russia versus Saudi Arabia. Oh, Russia have got a group of uh, Uruguay, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia. Hmm, interesting. It seems it doesn't sound like a classic group. I mean, you know, you, you can't just because the team hasn't got a great World Cup tradition doesn't necessarily mean they're they're not quite good. I mean, you know, Egypt currently have Mohamed Salah, uh, Uruguay have Luis Suarez, you know, Diego uh, Edinson Cavani, I should say. Um, and they do have a World Cup tradition, do you? They they have got a big World Cup tradition. Saudi Arabia, maybe not so much, um, but uh, but five thirty eight, the American statistical. Uh, I guess Craig Burley, probably not a big reader, um, but data driven journalism uh, crunched the numbers and to uh, reveal that Russia have got the easiest group in the history of the World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry. Since the World Cup moved to its present format, 1986, uh, this is the worst group uh, in terms of quality of teams in the group relative to the average quality of teams in the tournament. To say that it is the worst group of all time is actually inaccurate. That would have been the 2010 group between Paraguay, Italy, Slovakia, and New Zealand. Um, uh, Group Owen, of his six matches, I had the pleasure of attending two matches, um, including... Uh, two Slovakia matches. Uh, Italy failed to qualify from that group, even though it was the, uh, apparently the worst ever, the, mm-hmm. the the worst ranked teams ever to all be put into one pot together. Um, so you know, it's these things. Even the easy groups can go wrong. But apparently, uh, the chances of Russia getting an easy easier group than this by by chance are you know around about the two percent mark. Uh, so again, uh, <laughs> some people have all the luck, kid. I mean. <laughs> So it, it did. It did go. I mean, the problem, I suppose, with groups. I mean, I don't know. A lot of them. A lot of them look a bit like Champions League groups. A bit. A bit sort of predictable. Yeah, it doesn't usually work out that way, though. It, it, the reaction in England was funny. That this is. Uh, this is a pretty kind draw. I. I, I would have thought that Belgium are exactly the kind of team who England will probably lose to. And then you're oh, well, in. Well, Belgium are a better team than England. I mean, yeah. Belgium, Belgium should stomp on England. Yeah, and particularly the way they play. I just think they're. And having seen them at the Euros in the flesh, it's, I, I, I'm not, obviously England have better players in Ireland and so on. But I just have a feeling that, that that they're the type of team that England would really struggle against. And then you've got two other games that are uh, against some much smaller footballing nations with potentially much bigger hearts. We've seen that cause some trouble for England in the past as well. They're in a situation where I think Belgium will be really hard, which means they, they're one slip up away potentially from an ignominious early exit, which I hope doesn't happen. I'd like to see England have a run. I think England have a very good team. You know, uh, there are a couple of issues with teams, such as not really having much of a central midfield at the moment. But they have got really good players in a lot of positions and quite a, quite a lot of good players through, throughout the squad. So they should be bet- They should be good. Because they're England, you just sort of assume... It's not going to happen. It never does, for whatever reason. Uh, but uh, but I can say that according to five thirty eight, uh, it is the easiest group for the top two in terms of it, they predict England to go through in second with with a seventy five percent certainty, and no other second place team has as high as seventy five percent. You know, so it's as close to a bye to the second round as can be statistically. Uh, fathom from these groups. But anyway, look, that's the World Cup. I'm sure we'll be hearing more about it as time goes on. Um, but the Premier League, uh, Sam Allardyce taking charge of his first ever game, victory. Was it his first or his second? Well, it was his first. I mean, I think if he'd lost on Saturday, he would have said that he would have that he had an impact on the 4-0 
mm. uh, in midweek. But this well, well, having been there, I think he did have an impact definitely because you know players are players are players who would have been playing, going, oh, what's going on at this club? How long is Unzi going to be the manager? Um, now know that Sam is watching. This game counts. You know, he, there, our new manager has been appointed. He's there and. Presumably, what happens in this game will go towards who plays in the next game and how the team takes shape going forward. So, it is probably a clever way to begin at a club. Uh, it's a, I mean, it does put the put the onus on the players a bit to to step up. I suppose. I mean, you could say it's a bit like it's a bit. The manager should be taking responsibility here. You are the manager now. Okay, what what do you mean by sitting in the stands? But you know, maybe it's a good way to sort of to to start things off. Anyway, they continued with a win. Um, but uh, Sam didn't like the suggestions that his inauguration wasn't... No, that um, Marco Silva was the original first choice for the job. He didn't like this. And he said, his record stands absolutely no comparison with mine. He got Hull City relegated last season, said Sam. Again, I don't think a big 538 man. Um, but Marco Silva is not taking this line down. I mean, maybe maybe Sam thought, oh, Marco Silva, he probably doesn't read the papers. Well, he does. Or at least he speaks to Daily Mirror journalists who make him aware of Sam uh, Allardyce's comments. And Marco Silva comes back. He says, I read what he said, but when he makes this comparison, it does not make any sense. Why does it not make any sense? Well, number one, uh, it's the same thing if I compare his work with a national team coach like Gareth Southgate. <laughs> he said, it's like me comparing the five goals Richarlison has scored in the Premier League with Peter Crouch uh, Crouch is nearly 37 Richarlison is 20 Crouch has played so many games Richarlison far less go and see what Allardyce was doing when he was 40 years old or see what he was doing in his first seven seasons as a coach then look at what I'm doing at the same age or you can wait until I am 63 years old and then we can compare what I have done which I think is all pretty good points um Pretty good points from um, from Marco Silva uh, in terms of a comeback. I mean, I don't know if Sam Allardyce is going to get drawn into this one because it sounds to me as though he might be slightly he might be slightly outmatched. I mean, for what it's worth, his first seven seasons as a coach, which I think Marco Silva chose the seven seasons because that's how long he's been doing the job, rather than because he looked at Sam Allardyce's Wikipedia and realized that he'd only managed Limerick, Preston as caretaker, Blackpool, and Notts County, winning zero trophies, zero titles in that time. But uh, whether Sam Allardyce is going to continue, I don't know, but I hope he does. The Daily Mirror had a poll on their website underneath the article asking people who they'd rather have managing their club, Sam Allardyce or Marco Silva. The result was 87% for Marco Silva. So that's the way uh, that's the way the Daily Mirror internet readers are seeing it. Uh, so the the weekend, we saw, we saw a few managers learning on the job. Mm-hmm. Pep Guardiola, he said... Um, Guardiola brought on Gabriel Jesus at halftime. This is with City 1-0 down at home to West Ham. Now, I don't know if you had any doubt about the result, Owen, but I was still very much expecting Manchester City to come back and win the game, notwithstanding their not-great first-half performance. Yeah, of course, you're, you're expecting it. You're assuming it's at some point that's not going to happen. They've been close to tripping up now for a couple of weeks, but they still keep finding a way again. Mm. Well... Guardiola, uh, so so Aguero was on for the beginning, but then Jesus came on as well. Uh, the player who came off was Danilo, so kind of, you know, more defensive player. Guardiola said, I learned to attack a bit differently. Normally we don't play with two strikers and two wingers, but maybe to attack this kind of defense, it's much better. They just didn't want to play. When they lost the ball, they didn't press. They just went back with 10 players in the box. It's happened the last three games. It's almost impossible. But with two strikers in the box, we can play the same way with the same patience and the same quality. It's good news for me in the future. How we attacked in the second half was much better. I thought that was kind of an interesting thing for him to say because, first of all, two strikers. This is like revolutionary. <laughs> you know, if they're if they're playing, if, if all their guys are back and no no one's coming into your half apart from a couple of their fast players, if it looks like there might be a break, then yeah, put up put put more players put more players in there. You know, I mean, if it's like, is that not really obvious? Is that not a Obviously, I'm going to do that. Guardiola apparently was, you know, said he was a little bit bit surprised by this, but it is something he's going to look at. I mean, I suppose it's something that that all of these uh, managers who complain, as he's doing, about other teams defending against them, might want to consider. Well, what if you use more players in attack? <laughs> Would that maybe even it out a little bit, um, numbers wise? 
Um, learning on the job also is another another manager who complains a lot about the same sort of same sort of thing. It's Jurgen Klopp. Uh, on this occasion, he didn't have any. Uh, he, he didn't have to be upset about uh, Brighton trying to defend against them because Liverpool scored early and kept scoring and scored five goals. This is an amazing statistic, actually. About every time Liverpool have played a Chris Hutton side, they've scored five goals. Right. Four, t- four games, 20 goals. Um, the first goal scored by um, Emre Chan. Emre Chan, the German man. <laughs> Emre Chan heading the. Uh, that, was, that was from the BBC. <laughs> BBC's Roundup uh, show. Emre Chan, the German, German man. German. Emre Chan, the German man. The pause is it's the It's all best about bit. the pause, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> what was he? He was just. I'll go to the end of the sentence and hope that inspiration strikes, but sometimes inspiration doesn't strike. Um, Emery Chan heading the opener, a very fine slow motion footballer. Emery Chan rising above Shane Duffy, yeah, one of the only players I think with the mass, the necessary momentum to really give Shane Duffy a problem if he gets a run on him uh, in the box. It's um, a worry though, isn't it? Well, the Duffy was beaten in the air by Emery Chan. Yeah, I mean, this hypothetical World Cup is going to be very difficult if Shane Duffy loses form. Mm. I see. I see. Uh, Tim Cahill still leaping high, much smaller man, but good in the air. So, yeah, he, he might look at that and, see, and think we're going to get a goal in that game. The Peruvians, you know, Peruvians. Yeah, they'll stick a couple in the mixer. Um, but but what's em- the average height of a of the nation of Peru? I wonder. Um, you, on you go there. Well, there was a there was a story recently about the um, the tallest. Uh, the tallest World Cup teams, which I could get, which I could get for you in a moment, I can tell you exactly how tall the Peruvian World Cup team is. If you want to, uh, if you want to know that information, Karen. Uh, desperately. Okay. Well, um, how desperately do you want to know that? Well, information? I've got it right here in front of me. Well, there you go. And um, this is from a little FIFA, uh, CI, no CIES Football Observatory monthly report profile of qualified teams, and they rank them by age. Oldest team is Panama. 29.4. Youngest team is Nigeria, 24.9. In terms of age, Nigeria, Germany, and England, the three youngest teams. Um, the uh, height, tallest team, Serbia. The, they knocked Ireland out, obviously. And the fourth tallest is Denmark. Ireland were playing all the big, tall teams. Mm. Um, Peru uh, are the third shortest team, 178 centimeters. Japan, 178 centimeters. Kingdom of Saudi Arabia are the shortest team, 176 centimeters. That's nearly 10 centimeters on average shorter than the Serbs. England, though, are actually one of the shortest uh, or are one of the shorter teams. Korea, for instance, are taller than them. Mm. Um, 182. England are, are, are rather mid table, you know what I mean? The uh, average height of a Peruvian male in 2005 was five foot four and a half inches. Yeah. Shane Duffy could have scored a hat-trick. Yeah. <laughs> could have scored a World Cup hat-trick. Well, 178 centimetres is the average height of a Peruvian World Cup player. So, um, well, listen, the squad's going to change a bit between now and then, Ken. Yeah. Um, so where are we? Uh, oh, yeah, the, the other thing. Yeah, I was saying that Klopp was learning on the job. The thing that he's learning is how to, or at least he's trying something. You remember we were talking to Honigstein recently about, um, you know, whether Klopp's ideas are now a little outmoded well what if you update the ideas as you go what if you do that and one of the one of the criticisms that's been made of Klopp is that uh, asking your players to give 110 percent and run 120 kilometers in every game is all very well but once you've got to play loads of games in a row your players all get exhausted and then injured and your season falls apart that's not too good that's not great so what do you do well, if you're Jurgen Klopp, what you start to do, as Sky were uh, revealing with some graphics over the weekend, is, is uh, start to make changes to your team willy-nilly. Um, 54 changes Liverpool have made to their teams. They've played 15, 15 matches. Now, compared to last season, I think it was 24 they had made at this, at this point. And if you look at the rest of the league, the next highest is Everton. Everton, who are a team who, to a certain extent, have been just trying stuff. Like oh that didn't let's try Gilfie you know uh, you know as the as the uh, number ten let's try Wayne you know in midfield let's you know just trying stuff please that so they're kind of maybe a little artificially high West Ham uh, thirty six Chelsea thirty five but Liverpool have made twenty more changes so this is obviously something that Klopp has said okay we we made a, a mess of this last season 
I, I thought, let's be consistent. They have they are playing Champions League this season, which obviously makes a difference. But you can see there's a huge um there is a huge gap from them to the second place team. He's doing it way more than anybody else. Obviously believes that a lot of these players that he's got are interchangeable. Or that they if he plays, you know, um if he plays Salah uh, he's going to do pretty much the same things as Mane would do if Mane played there. So does he just believe in his system more so, way more so than trust in the ability of abilities of individual footballers? Or does he trust him so much that he he's assembled a squad that he feels are all technically good enough that they can swap around where it needs to be? Well, the fact is, like, Mane was sitting on the bench for the Brighton match. Like, you know, Mane, Mane being missing last season was was a big part of Liverpool's narrative as to why their season fell apart. Oh, he had to go to the African Cup of Nations and, you know, he then he got injured and all the games he missed, you know, they couldn't score and lost all those games, you know. Whereas now they're leaving him out, even though he's, you know, he's fit. Like, he, he played in midweek. He can play. Maybe he's not super 100% fit uh, and they want to make sure that he, or trying to minimise the chance, rather, of him um, avoiding, or of him, or of him getting injured. Um, but the idea of him being left out just wouldn't have occurred last season. If he had been available, he's always going to play. So obviously they've kind of improved the squad a little bit. Also learning on the job was Georgina Vinaldum, who gave him quite an interesting interview after the game where they were asking him about the fact that he played at centre centre back. Like the back three was Lovren with Vinaldum and Emre Chan, two midfielders and, and one central defender. Um, this was largely due to injuries or illnesses and so on. Vinaldum said, well... He just put it on the board, and I could see where I was standing on the pitch was in the fence. So it was like, okay. He he basically didn't say to him, "This is what you're going to be doing." It was just like, yeah, this is that's you. Go out there and uh, show me what you can do. And I don't think Vinaldo uh, sounded too happy about it at all. Actually, he was trying to be diplomatic, but it sounded to me very much as though he was a player who was a little concerned. He was a bit relieved that he got away with the game without being uh, without being exposed. Mm. <laughs> but really, doesn't want to have to do it too many more times, uh, on you know, at the risk uh, at the risk that something quite embarrassing could be in his imminent future. Um, the other thing I want to mention here, Owen, is Mark Clattenberg has given a quite remarkable interview to uh, the Men in Blazers podcast um, over in uh, over in New York. Clattenberg uh, is sort of reflecting on his career in the Premier League, and he talks about. One of his his favorite games, one of his finest hours, the Battle of Stamford Bridge. You remember the Battle of Stamford Bridge? Yep. Do you though, Owen? Are you bluffing? It's the Spurs the Spurs game that yeah. lost I'm playing in twenty fifteen. Yeah. Whenever Leicester won the 2016. league. Twenty sixteen, yeah. Late on in the season. Chelsea found some form. Some unexpected form yeah. in the back of the couch. Eden Hazard was suddenly an animal. Absolutely inspired. Yep. Eden Hazard. Uh, the Leicester players were all celebrating in Jamie Vardy's kitchen. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But Mark Clattenberg was on the field at Stamford Bridge. And what was he doing? Simply sitting back and enjoying the show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you remember, this is the game when everybody went went crazy. Didn't Dembele spit on someone or he got banned for six matches for, for like nutting someone? It was just insanity happening everywhere. It was like a Libertadores type of game, you know? Uh, uh, there's one game in particular, says Clattenberg. Which was the Battle of Stamford Bridge, Chelsea versus Tottenham. It was the famous that year. If Leicester win the title, it was theatre. I went in with a game plan that I didn't want Tottenham Hotspur blaming Mark Clattenburg that they were going to lose the title. It should have been three red cards to Tottenham. I allowed them to self-destruct. So all the media, all the people in the world went, Tottenham lost the title. If I sent three players off from Tottenham, what's the headline? Clattenburg lost Tottenham the title. And it was pure theatre that Tottenham self-destructed against Chelsea and Leicester won the title. So, at this point, uh, one of the men in Blazers' house, Roger, makes the, I think, salient point to this. Were the Chelsea players not screaming bloody murder, like, Clattenburg, what are you doing? We're getting massacred here. Uh, Clattenburg says, it was the first game where Diego Costa never got cautioned. It was so crazy when you look back in the game. But when Hazard scored to equalise to make it too well, I've never felt an atmosphere in a stadium like that because Chelsea had stopped one of the enemies winning the title. In a way, you scripted it, suggests the host. host. I helped the game, says Clamberg. I certainly benefited the game by my style of refereeing. 
Some referees would have played by the book, and Tottenham would have been down to seven or eight players and probably lost, and Tottenham would have been looking for an excuse. But I didn't give them an excuse, because my game plan was, let them lose the title. <laughs> this is, I find this honestly incredible. Like, in one way, the, the, uh, it, was, it was a hilarious game. It was brilliant. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't hilarious if you were a Tottenham fan. But Tottenham can't really complain about this in the sense that he's he's more or less saying I should have sent off Tottenham players and didn't because I didn't want to be the man whose whose fault it was of oh, them blaming me and so on. They got to keep the players on the field. You know what I mean? They they did. What he's saying is actually is true. Well, except that the point of sending somebody off is A, to punish the infraction and B, to deter other people from doing it. So you don't actually normally have to send four players off because if you send one off, it's unlikely that the rest of the challenges are going to happen to the same extent. Absolutely. And also the fact that the referee's job is to enforce the rules, not to massage the narrative. You know what I mean? Like he's basically saying that he allows the headlines or what he thinks the headlines will be to dictate his performance, to dictate what he, what he does out there. Which is the kind of thing that you might think, but you probably shouldn't say. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not so... I mean, referees are, are human beings and, and all that. It, t- it takes a certain level of ego to think that you can lose Spurs the title, but it takes another, even far greater size of ego to then think that and say it on a podcast. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's, just, it is, it's just the fact that you should not allow those considerations to determine what you do it's like okay you know if I, see, if I see a player commit a red card offence like my job is now to produce a red card I owe it to the the game you know my, my duty as a referee and also to the team who's just had this uh, mm. you know red card offence perpetrated against them surely it's just a lot easier as well on yourself to instead of be constantly thinking about the possible repercussions in national newspapers of my actions to just do what you're supposed to do it and then everyone would have said look at Tottenham they completely lost their head because they had they had gone they had gone crazy I don't even think people would have been talking about Clattenburg it would have been oh Spurs get three men sent off in as they completely self-destruct in crazy Spurs fans might have been talking about Clattenburg yeah, but, but football yeah, generally would, wouldn't. I remember the game. I mean, it was it was a good game. I'll give Clattenburg that. It was a good game. Maybe the, maybe the game would be better if you just abolished the referee altogether. Just just disciplined it by handing out suspensions afterwards. <laughs> and it's all about you know what you think you can get away with. Time to wrap today's report on sport. We want you, Shane. Who's everyone's match-winning hero tonight? Uh, Shane Duffy, two goals. <laughs> two goals, Alvo. Two goals and a tragic red card that rules him out of the group stage of the World Cup. <laughs> 16 players there into the danger zone. Chance maybe yes! <laughs> You go home to your mother and your father and grow up to be strong. Determination etched all over that as he stretched for it to put it home. And Ireland lead 1-0. And now we've 85 minutes to sit the edge of our seats. This happened before and we know what can happen. Now it's up to them. Oh, we're getting ready for Russia. Good luck. All right, let's talk a little bit more now about, well, first of all, Manchester United's victory at Arsenal with John Bruin and Jonathan Wilson. Is it possible, Jonathan, to really criticise Arsenal or does any of that criticism have to be tempered by acknowledgement of the freakish performance of David De Gea in the Manchester United goal? Well, both. I mean, and De Gea was, was superb. I mean, he was superb statistically. You know, he's ever made 14 saves in Premier League game before since we started counting. Um, and, yeah, he was superb just watching it. There's things that took your breath away. And that double save he made was was one of the best saves I think I've ever seen live in the stadium. But you have to criticise Arsenal because they, they gave United a 2-0 start. I mean, they played really, really well for 79 minutes of that game. And in that 79 minutes, they had 32 shots. But the problem was they'd already lost it by then. You know, in that first 11 minutes, they had one shot and they gave United two goals. So it's, it's, it's this recurring problem for Arsenal. They, they seem to go out of their way in big games just when they've 
just when they're optimistic, just when things look like they're going well, you know, they, they undermine themselves and they do something stupid to put success, to put achievement out of reach. And then we praise them for battling bravely and you know, playing well when, 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 when all hope is gone. But you know, the fact is they, they yet again completed two very soft goals. Jonathan, you've actually written a book on the subject, The Outsider, um, a book about goalkeepers. Where, I don't know if you have, have ranked them necessarily, but does David De Gea at the moment stand comparison with some of the greats of the past or am I getting ahead of myself a bit? I mean, I think certainly at the moment, you know, he's he's right up there, and he's one of the the best four or five in the world. Um, I think his reflexes are extraordinary. You know, there's, there's different styles of goalkeeping, and I think in terms of just being somebody who who makes saves, somebody who gets in the right position, somebody who makes the opposition sort of hit the ball at him. Um, you know, he, he's he's outstanding, um, and, and you know, he he was a difference between the sides. Ultimately, I mean, you know, once you put Arsenal's early laxity aside, he was the reason why why Arsenal didn't get back into that game. With, with what was, I mean, you know, while, while criticising Arsenal, we shouldn't forget just how well they did play in that last 79 minutes. I mean, to have 33 shots in a game against United, against the Mourinho United, is is also extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, what would you put it down to, uh, John? I mean, I think it was a badly needed win for Jose Mourinho, who hadn't, you know, his record against other, you know, sort of rival sides had not really been too good since taking over um, at Manchester United. But I was struck by how how downbeat he actually seemed afterwards. He he, uh, it was it wasn't as though they just had a, a storming three one away victory. To to judge by his uh, demeanour, was that all because Paul Pogba uh, managed to get sent off, or had he seen other things that you think might have troubled him ahead of the you know. Might the thought have crossed his mind that if we played this way against Manchester City, we could lose in double figures? <laughs> well, that has to be a factor, doesn't it? I think I think Jose Mourinho is one of those people that, uh, well, misery loves company, and he he's able to find <laughs> something to complain about, and that would be the Pogba decision, obviously. Um, which may I state my point of view on it? It was an, it was an absolute red card. How is there any um, debate about this? I can't I cannot for the life of me understand why this is one of these. Decisions that's being debated in any way, Jonathan was, was, or John, I should say, was a filthy tackle. No, I mean he just stood on his leg. It's dangerous, it, you know. It, w- w- the, the, people talk about intent. That's not part of the, the laws of the game either. So um, it was bang on a red card. Um, but as regards United's play, uh, a good friend of mine actually went to the game and he doesn't watch United too often, and he just said, you know, United were very, very bad in that game. Um, and I think the signs are there, and I think I think Ken made a good point, which is if you play like that against Manchester City um, and actually invite as many chances as United did, leaving your goalkeeper exposed, then there's plenty to be concerned about. Um, maybe one thing is that maybe that Mourinho rivalry with Arsene Wenger maybe isn't quite what it used to be because you know they're almost supporting actors these days in the Premier League and. It's it's not quite the big deal it once was. Beating Arsenal is not as big a deal for Manchester United as it once was. So Mourinho can't be too. Uh, he can't go too over the top because he knows next week uh, he's facing the the top, well probably the best team in Europe at the moment. Well, and and he does so without the man who who I think most people at this stage would agree is Manchester United's best player. What I mean I mean another Paul Pogba has been criticised. Uh, people like Graham Souness have said, "Oh, he doesn't run the game," and there, you know, there's there's been that sort of undercurrent of, "Oh, Pogba," you know, there's a lot of flashy stuff, but is there really that much substance there? Um, you know, I, I thought he was very good again, or he he showed the kind of quality that he can give, setting up two of the goals, uh, and and until he got sent off, I think he uh, he showed his value. What does what do you think Manchester United are missing when he doesn't play? Well, the thing that Pogba brings is is that drive from that midfield, the, the athleticism. Um, I certainly think that last season, it's something that I've talked about quite a lot, which was how in big games he went missing. I think, OK, he's actually missed a, a couple of United's bigger games this season, but they're always going to miss a player who's got that, that drive and he's got that ability to take players out of the game by making long runs with the ball. Um and, you know, in these days of careful tactical planning, you need what, for want of a better phrase, is an X factor. And Pogba provides that. I think the issue is that 
now that Matic is there to add that little bit more discipline in midfield. Pogba's flight of fancies are... Uh, they can cover for them far more than they used to be able to. Um, I think I think you know I think Mourinho, being the manager that he is, uh, has a, had a problem harnessing the talent of Pogba because he is such a a, a free spirit really of the type that Mourinho, throughout his career, we've seen him not get on too well with. But um, ultimately, Manchester United being without him, uh, that that. that at Manchester City, where I was yesterday, uh, a great, a, f- a fair few smiles about that. I have to say that. How do you mean a fair? How do you mean a fair few smiles, John? A, a fair few smiles about the fact that Pogba's not in the team next week. Oh yeah, yeah. Playing against City. They're, I mean, they're, they're, yeah, yeah. And uh, actually, if you notice, actually Guardiola's team selection yesterday, he actually withdrew um, Company and Fernandinho, who both on four yellow cards because he realise that you, know, <laughs> you don't want to be risking your players when you've got that bigger game coming up. Jonathan, you wanted to come in there? Yeah, the, the one thing I would say is that uh, you know, I completely agree that Pogba, I think, when he's there they look much more fluent side and I think his link up with, with Jesse Lingard's been very impressive the last two games. And United you know, against Arsenal and against Watford you know, both matches, they, they look absolutely ruthless going forward. The one tiny slight doubt, and I can't, you know, I can't quite work out if I, if I think this or not, but it is two games when they've been given an early lead and they've ended up slightly clinging on. That They've suddenly come under pressure in a way you would not expect a Mourinho side too. So I wonder if there is then some substance to what people like Graham Sooners say, that Pogba doesn't give you control. Uh, and I thought it was notable on, um, on Saturday that once you know, when Pogba went off and Mourinho shut the game down, they actually were, I mean, there's a penalty appeal when Danny Welbeck probably should have had a penalty. But apart from that, that last, uh, what was it? 16 minutes plus injury time, they were pretty comfortable. So it's it's the one slight doubt I still have about Pogba that I you know I I I think while he clearly makes him a much much better side to watch, he makes him a more dangerous side. I, I don't think they they have control in midfield in the way Mourinho would probably like. Yeah, well, for somebody who doesn't like free spirits, as John says about Jose Mourinho, Jonathan, it is interesting that he's got Paul Pogba, who he's building his team around. And now the stories are he's going to go back for Mesut Ozil, who, of course, he's managed in the past. I can't really think of two more free-spirited players. Well, Me- Mesut Ozil, incidentally, who had more than three times as many touches in the in that game as Pogba, 127. So towering over the game was the figure of uh, Mesut Ozil just controlling everything that happened out there. Yeah, I mean, Mourinho's relationship with Ozil I find really interesting. I mean, this is... Interviews with Mourinho's or press comments where Mourinho sort of said that he's, he's tactically very aware and, and you know, technically, obviously, is, is superb. Look at how he used Ozil at Real Madrid. He never quite seemed comfortable with him. He, he put him out on the right because he didn't didn't trust him in that, in that central area. There seems to have been a lot of debate about um, whether Mourinho actually wanted him in the team or whether it was sort of a, the core of, of Spanish players in the dressing room felt that Ozil was the, the creative spark they needed. Uh, so that relationship always seemed to be very complicated. Although he didn't use a lot of them, he never seemed entirely comfortable with it. So that, that it does seem a, a strange signing for United to be considering making. But I guess if you can get a player of that talent for free and his wages don't put you off, maybe you sort of think, well, yeah, he'll be useful against lesser sides, so he can help us unpick them. And if we don't end up using him against a bigger size where you need a bit more tactical discipline, well, well so be it. He's a free transfer. It doesn't matter. How do you think this signing would go down, John? I mean, we, you know, again, it's it's something which is just speculation at the moment, but there does seem to be, you know, genuine interest there. Would he be a player that that excite that would excite the uh, slopes of Old Trafford? Um, would there be maybe a bit of amusement as to, you know, if you if you've already got, I ask this on behalf of Manchester United fans. Really, I'm asking on behalf of myself. If you've already got a player like Henrik Mkhitaryan, what really can you get from Mesut that you can't get from 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 a, from a player like that. Okay, from the Manchester United fans I've spoken to, I'd say opinion is pretty much divided over Ozil. Some people see him as the, you know, indolent, lazy player who only plays in big game, who only plays in against opposition like Huddersfield, where actually you disproved that with the stats you just ran past us there. Um, and, and, but there is there is also the feeling that. He's an upgrade on Mkhitaryan, a player that 
Um, I think he's a very, very good player, but Manchester United have certainly not seen the best of him. Um, but again, that that that, that idea of free spiritedness. Um, Juan Mata is another one who probably fit into that category in a probably more unstate, understated way. He's another player that there's been decent spells under Mourinho, but he's he's really and he's gone missing a little bit of, of late. Um, he's not a, he's not a Mourinho type of player. I suppose the thing is though that the one thing about Ozil that, that you would look at is that occasionally, often Mourinho has a sort of father son relationship with the, with players, and you know, there's the stuff that came out in Ozil's book a, a while back, which is Mourinho treated him. I would say it seems like fairly harshly, but Ozil responded to that. Um, and that would be the hope that if, if he does go to Manchester United, uh, that Mourinho could get him playing with a bit more, a bit more fire in his belly than he often you often see at Arsenal. Um, Mourinho and Arsene Wenger, of course, are very very different managers, um, both motivators in different ways. Um, but Mourinho won't indulge Ozil in quite the same way as Arsene Wenger has done throughout. Is four years or so in London. Yeah, maybe. Well, maybe Moses is one of those guys who, who responds to sort of treat him mean. Uh, I saw Nathan Redmond responded to the, his pep talk during the week by uh, setting up a goal for Southampton. He started doing some attacking. But you were at the City game, John. I mean, you know, City have now equaled the thirteen wins in a row that Chelsea had last season. They're on course to break every record. They're absolutely sensational, but they have had a lot of tight games. Is there any hint there of a of a bit of a slowdown that this team uh, has been, you know, winning games later on, but uh, is not quite tearing apart the opposition in the way that uh, they were a little bit earlier in the season? Where, are there any signs of that, or is this just wishful thinking? I, I think there are signs. Yeah, um, I think until De Bruyne um, set up. Silver's winner. I think De Bruyne have been a peripheral figure in the game. I think Sergio Aguero certainly isn't the same player since his uh, misadventure in uh, in Holland. Um, you know, when he had that car crash. Um, I, I, I think also that opposition slowly are beginning to uh, to work out how you might get something out of playing Manchester City. Uh, it was highly noticeable that. David Moyes had, uh, had clearly watched the 90 minutes that Southampton had played against uh, against Manchester City and adopted almost exactly the same tactics, which was essentially uh, five at the back with two sat very close to them um, and, you know, just completely shielding the defence, like essentially two, two huge banks in front and a player who could be quick on the counter in Mikel Antonio. The thing is, Manchester City do open up uh, they, they do leave openings, which is, you know, how, how uh, West Ham scored yesterday. I mean, they actually scored from a corner, but they had had some openings before that. Antonio could have scored. There are, there are a couple of things that you can get. I think um, John Stones uh, is, is out until Christmas, we're told. Uh, he is a player who's probably looks better in his absence because... They don't quite have the player to, to bring the ball out of defence without Stones in the team. Yesterday, Mangala played, um, essentially because he was keeping company out, as I said, to protect against suspension. First start in 568 games, looked very rusty. Otamendi was a player I saw praised quite highly by Phil Neville last night. I don't actually share that enthusiasm for Otamendi as a player. I think he's got better. I think like his pass completion is better than it was. He's certainly vulnerable. So Manchester City are, as I said before, probably the most informed team in Europe, but they're not a perfect team. And there are things that you can get at at the moment. And there is there's something of that slowdown. They, they, you know, but the thing is, when covering that game yesterday, you don't have to send the piece on 90 minutes or whatever, I was always aware that they would probably grab a goal because the one thing that Guardiola always has with his teams is that they stay relaxed about playing the game as they should be. There's no lumping it long to the big man or anything like that. That even teams, you know, that, that Ajax used to do and Johan Cruyff teams used to do, they, they keep playing and they will eventually wear teams down. So uh, is, is there hope for Manchester United? Yes, of course. I think so. 
but Manchester City are still a pretty damn decent team. Yeah, and they are flexible when necessary, Jonathan. I did find it quite interesting yesterday that Pep was talking about how, well, we put two strikers up front. We, we don't normally do that, but it, se- it seemed to work. Teams are getting more and more defensive against us by the week, so this is something that we'll have to look at. For somebody who's quite dogmatic uh, and quite in love with his own ideas about, about systems and formations, I, was, I just thought it was kind of interesting that he is, is willing to, to adapt things. Yeah, I think I think to be fair with Guardiola, I mean, pretty much since he, he left Barcelona, he's been very very flexible with formations. And even that last season at Barcelona, you know, he started trying with a three at the back, and it wasn't always that that four three three sort of three four three hybrid. Um, and you anyway, know, I, I think that's something that, that Guardiola really sees as being his job is to is great formation that exploits the weaknesses of the opposition. So I think he's always had that, but I, I think there's a real need for that now. Um, given that, as you know, as John says, I, mean, I, I don't know if it's have teams worked work them out, or is it that they haven't played three teams who were capable of playing in a very defensive way in a row? That you're know, playing Huddersfield, playing Southampton, playing playing West Ham. I guess even the final game before that, which was you know another one goal victory, very late on. Uh, and you look back earlier in the season, the, the other teams where they sort of haven't been influenced against were, were that Everton game and arguably that Brighton game in the opening day of the season. So. Yeah, I think we can be pretty confident United are going to sit deep against them and they're going to have to try and break them down. So he does have to fiddle with things, try and work out where he can create space, how he can surprise the opposition. But I do think that that willingness to not change approach but to change shape has, has sort of been there for five, well, four or five years. All right, Jonathan, brilliant. John, thanks so much. Cheers. After better went, my head was fried. I didn't even know there was a damn card in the thing. Fucking I was horror. devastated. I'd been off the smokes a while. Saw that back on there. <laughs> I had a date organised for that night. A first date with someone cancelled that. My head was gone. <laughs> Woke up the following morning and to my absolute amazement, I read this message on my phone. Let me tell you, you're only getting this because you're a former player of mine and <laughs> I'm not too sure too many journalists would have got the third time lucky. Hi Richie, sorry the equipment just didn't work again, but it's no problem for me to do it again. Maybe see you in Ipswich one day for third time lucky. Best wishes, Mickey. Best wishes, Mickey. I got a job on a Wednesday. I'd been a player up until that, that yeah. Wednesday. Took the training on Thursday. I picked the team on Friday and I took the game on Saturday. So I got the job on the Wednesday. I'd been a player up until that, that yeah. Wednesday. Took the training on Thursday. Picked the team on Friday and I took the game on Saturday. So it's a bit of a whirlwind. Oh God. And I'm just looking down, I think all the red lights are still on. It looks like we've recorded this successfully. Mick, thank you so much for agreeing to do this so many times. Richie, I sincerely hope so, because there's no fourth time lucky, let me tell you. I'm trying to judge your facial reaction there, Ken. I'm not sure you agree that Ozil is necessarily an upgrade on Henrik Mkhitaryan. I think that Mkhitaryan's very good. Um, but, you know, I, I will, I will accept that he hasn't really done much for Manchester United. Although I, I I mean I could sit here all day on boring you about why I think he has not really been put in a position to show what he can do. I don't I think it's a bit like, okay, here's the battle tortoise and now we're gonna strap like this this uh, fairy magic wand on onto its head and put a bit of glitter sparkle on it and that will that's Mkhitaryan and he will and he will be he will uh, sprinkle glitter and creativity over our, over our moves. You know what I mean? It's a bit like it's superstitious. It's cargo cult type of football. It's like, oh, we've seen this guy play for Dortmund and he scored all these goals and set up all these goals. Get out! Why don't you get out there and do it for us? And it's like, well, you know, at Dortmund, I had like, <laughs> I kind of there was there was six of us all moving around together. We all knew where the other was. You know, if I went here, he went there. You know, there's a there's a lot going into the system. It wasn't just magic. You know, every time he got the ball. Um, Mourinho likes Ozil. He he knows him. He played very well for Mourinho for years. He understands what Ozil can do, I suppose. He he understands what Ozil could bring to his team. The, the familiarity um, is is there. You know, maybe he just thinks, McTarran, I can't get through to this guy. He's tried different things. It's like, it's like John was saying um, about his treatment of Ozil at Madrid, where he... 
he bullied him a bit. But uh, but he kind of he could see something in Ozil that Ozil kind of kind of needed that or wanted to be bullied a little bit. I mean, at least you know, you know, this is a slightly perverse dynamic, I suppose. But sometimes a player has to be challenged or has to be kind of fighting against this fear of embarrassment or judgment or you know that that will actually make him play better rather than if he feels sort of chilled out and relaxed. In which case, maybe he's only going to give you ninety percent. Maybe Ozil is a little bit like that. He's tried this kind of thing with Mkhitaryan and it hasn't really worked. You know, Mkhitaryan, I think, just feels like, why is this guy doing this to me? You know what I mean? I think he kind of has got into his shell a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and maybe he feels Ozil would, would respond better to that. I mean, I still think that that he should be making more of the talent that he's already got. Mkhitaryan is, is the best example of it. He should be making more of that. But, you know, if it's not going to happen, maybe at some point you've got to draw a line under it and say, okay, we'll try something that I know does work because it's worked before for me. So from his point of view, I can sort of understand why he might go for it. We've got a fun week ahead on the World Service. We're going to be recording our shows in the Liberty Hall Theatre featuring US Murph and many more. And we're also going to be bringing you a Christmas sports book special during mm-hmm. the week that's always much sought after. I think some more present ideas, some more present inspo for you there. Thanks, Murph. <laughs> uh, THX on. <laughs> Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Anne. Thanks, Karen. Thanks so much for Thanks, listening. Ken. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 